you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. In 1913, a syndicated news story, appearing first in newspapers in Chicago and thence nationwide, told the story of a brain-damaged amnesiac who had lost the ability of speech at the Minnesota State Hospital at Rochester. The story, entitled Who is A. He, The Man Who Was, began as follows. Who is A. He, the man of mystery who has spent six vain years groping after his own past? Who is A. He, who thinks with a man's brain, but has lost the threads of thought that hold a man's life together and bind him to family and friends. Here in the state hospital I have spent many hours with this tragic man who was, who suffers the fate of Kipling's famous character, the soldier whose hardship made him forgetful of his name, family, and regiment, with only the dim knowledge that he was a British soldier. A. He is a sailor, whose eye brightens at the mention of the American Navy. He may be an officer. He is erect, Dignified, well-mannered. He is not insane. His face is intelligent and his eye clear, but it clouds over as he tries to see into his own past. A. He was how W. H. Alburn, author of the syndicated article, approximated the only sound the mystery man ever made when spoken to. Other writers would later approximate it as high-high. Communication with the man was all but impossible. Not only could he not speak, save for the word which gave him his name, but neither could he write, save for the letters J.C.R. It is by those letters, assumed to have been the man's initials, that the mystery individual was more often known in the stories which followed. But due to his lack of speech, the assumptions most often made about him need to be questioned. It was assumed that he had been in the Navy because of his reaction to talk of the Navy, as well as the fact that the sole sound he uttered was said to sound like I.I. He apparently quite often pantomimed actions, the meaning of which pantomime was often assumed. In essence, it was like a game of charades in which you can guess what the meaning is, but the other person's not really able to tell you if you're right or not. The mysterious individual was a man who had been found on June 29, 1907, lying on the platform of the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad Station in Waseca, Minnesota. The man was fully unconscious, and doctors rapidly determined that his left side was paralyzed, probably by a stroke, although he may have suffered some sort of head injury. Nothing in the way of definitive identification was found, and the man was completely incommunicative. 
He is evidently a laborer, reported the Lacrosse Tribune on July 13th, and when found, was dressed in a, in a spotted gray suit and black shirt and wore a soft hat. He has dark hair, brown eyes, dark mustache tinged with gray, and a high forehead. He appears to be about 40 years old and is 5 feet 88 inches tall. The night he was discovered, he was taken to the Collins Hotel in town, and the next day was sent to the county poor form. On April 23, 1908, he was sent to the state hospital at Rochester, and there he remained for five years until W.H. Auburn visited and wrote the article. Shortly after Auburn's article was published, tentative identities were being proposed. A few weeks after the article's publication, Mrs. John Dean of San Diego, California saw the photo of J.C.R. and identified him as a man by the name of J.C. Ramsey. Ramsey had formerly worked at a bank in Pauls Valley, Oklahoma. She said she and Ramsey had lived at the same boarding house and that, quote, he disappeared nine years ago from Oklahoma City. She added that the identification was confirmed by people working at the same bank Ramsey had. Another article expanding on the Ramsey identification stated that he often used the expression a he previous to his disappearance. In a bizarrely coincidental occurrence, Edward C. Cornell, an employee of the Hotel Snyder in Portland, Oregon, also recognized him as J.C. Ramsey. But it was an entirely different man. This J.C. Ramsey was an engineer and had sailed from San Francisco bound for the Philippines in 1899. He had not been heard of since. Late in the month, a letter was received at Rochester from a man named Edward Vogt from Newark, New Jersey. Vogt said that JCR was actually Lieutenant Jacob R. Rostrom, who had served on board the USS New York and participated in the naval bombardment of the Cuban city of Matanzas during the Spanish-American War. Dr. A.F. Kilborn went to the hospital's mysterious patient to inquire about the identification. Kilborn said that the man seemed to recognize the name Edward Vogt, as well as that of Lieutenant Rostrom. Dr. Kilborn was following up with the Navy on the matter. At the end of a fairly lengthy New York Tribune article detailing the supposed identification is a single sentence essentially refuting the entire preceding story, that no records of a Lieutenant Jacob R. Rostrom could be found. Not wanting to simply take the newspaper's word for it, I tracked down a copy of Edward Callahan's list of officers of the Navy of the United States and of the Marine Corps from 1775 to 1900, published in 1901, and confirmed that there was, indeed, no record of not only Lieutenant Jacob R. Rostrom, but any sailor named Rostrom at all. For that matter, neither was there any record of an Edward Vogt. A story appearing in November 1913 a rewritten version of Auburn's article summed up what was said to have been learned from JCR about his identity. Through a mixture of written communication, pantomime, and interpretation of his reactions, it was learned that he was born around 1864 in either Washington or Baltimore. He claimed to have been sent to San Francisco to deliver some papers to a ship there and was returning to Washington when he stopped in Minneapolis. Here he said he was hit over the head, and left on the railway platform in Wasika. In July of 1913, Dr. E. H. Beckman performed brain surgery on JCR to attempt to alleviate pressure on the brain and thus hopefully to restore his memory. 
but though the doctor removed a sizable cyst from his skull. The damage was too severe, and though he regained a bit of movement, the surgery failed to restore any memory. By January of 1914, JCR was no longer at Rochester State Hospital, but the Oak Forest Infirmary in Chicago. At first I had wondered if he was transferred in the immediate aftermath of the surgery, but I found some articles claiming that he had escaped from the hospital in Minnesota, and then was eventually re-picked up in northwest Chicago. At any rate, he was at the hospital in Chicago when he was visited by two women, Julia H. Tennis and Mrs. Frank Johnson. Mrs. Tennis's nephew had gone missing several years before. His name was J. Allen Caldwell, and he had been born in Chicago in 1872 to James and Lucina Caldwell. When Jay was a teenager, he and his family pulled up stakes and moved to Taylor, North Dakota, where James bought some land and became quite a prosperous rancher. In 1906, he left the ranch in North Dakota and traveled the country, spending much time on the West Coast. Then in 1907, he returned. On the evening of August 14, 1907, he left home again, having had a disagreement with his father about his inheritance, and that was the last he had been seen. Julia Tennis was the sister of Jay's father, and felt hopeful that the John Doe at the infirmary was her missing nephew. Certainly, she had seen photographs of the mystery man in the newspaper, and felt that he resembled him. In discussion with the man, though non-communicative, he seemed to recognize the names of Jay Caldwell's horses, to recognize the brand of his father's ranch, and appeared to be able to remember the fate of a friend of Jay's who had shot himself. Mrs. Tennis also said that Jay Caldwell had slightly malformed toes, and it appeared to her as if JCR's toes were malformed in the same way. But there are problems with the identification, too. Though he had recognized the brand, he could not show the women where on the body of the animal the brand was usually applied. More significantly, JCR stood 5 foot 4 inches, while Caldwell had been 5 foot 10 inches. And most damningly of all, JCR had been found in Waseca on June 29, 1907. As long as Julia Tennis was correct in her recollection of the date on which Jay went missing, the mystery man had been found in Waseca fully a month and a half before Jay disappeared. Julia Tennis and Mrs. Johnson left the infirmary less than convinced about the identification of JCR as Jay Caldwell. Feeling the evidence he wasn't outweighed any of the evidence that he was, but another woman, named Mrs. Harriet Pitkin, seemed to be less so. She claimed that when she was a child, she had known Caldwell. Sometime shortly after the other two women had left, Pitkin showed up and said that JCR was her missing son. They went to North Dakota, where he was identified as Jay Caldwell by several people in Taylor, the town nearest the Caldwell Ranch. In Dickinson, May Caldwell Moran, Jay's sister, identified her brother but neither James Caldwell or his second wife, Laura, would identify him. An abortive trial took place at this time, James Caldwell being sued for $100,000, the value of land due to Jay Caldwell, which, it was claimed, he was being swindled out of. The defense for Mr. Caldwell in this suit found evidence that Mrs. Pitkin and Greenabalm, her lawyer, had followed suit fraudulently and merely sought financial gain for themselves. Pitkin, Greenabalm, and JCR returned to Chicago. On November 19th, Mrs. Pitkin appeared with the mystery man at 1938 Montgomery Street, 
the home of a man named Henry W. Freaker. When Mrs. Pitkin and J.C.R. entered the door of my home, I recognized them at once, Freaker said. I was not acquainted with, Miss, with Mrs. Pitkin. The man, who I am sure is Caldwell, dropped his hat and cane upon seeing me. Then, he said, J.C.R. wrote his name, though he misspelled it. Then Pitkin and J.C.R. left his home, and where they got to isn't known. By April of 1915, a Chicago deportation agent named A.H. Wilson wrote to the police chief of Dickinson, inquiring about the financial status of May Caldwell Moran, J. Caldwell's sister. He had received an appeal to send J.C.R. to North Dakota. He received a ply from a prominent attorney of Dickinson, H.J. Blanchard. Blanchard wrote that Mrs. Moran was not in a financial situation to accept her brother. He also said that, quote, It is maintained by persons who have made a thorough investigation of the matter that this Caldwell is an imposter, although Mrs. Moran acknowledged him as her brother when he was here last summer. As near as can be determined, it seems at this time he was still living with Mrs. Pitkin. After she presumably filed the appeal with Mr. Wilson, and seeing no way to gain financially from a debate over JCR's identity, JCR was placed in a hospital on April 23rd. Four days later, he disappeared from that hospital and was unheard of for several weeks, until sometime in July, he arrived back in Dickinson. It was popularly believed that he had walked from Illinois to North Dakota. Mrs. Pitkin's angle of seeking financial gain from this question of identity is in keeping with her history. As Mrs. Harriet LaBar, in January 1905 she was tried as an accomplice in a scheme by L.C. LaBar to swindle $2,000 from a publishing company. She was acquitted, though Mr. LaBar was convicted of the crime and sentenced to four years in prison. Note that it's unclear whether Mr. and Mrs. LaBar were, in fact, actually married. Almost immediately upon this case as having been dismissed, she was taken to Washington, D.C., where she was wanted for check fraud. She was acquitted of this charge as well. Sometime after this, she had been an inmate at a workhouse in St. Louis, Missouri, charged with witness tampering, but was paroled after two weeks. When she appeared at the Oak Forest Infirmary in 1914 to visit J.C.R., she first claimed he was her son, Earl W. Isles. She said during this short 1915 trial in North Dakota that she knew then that he wasn't, but kept up the charade so that she could take the man, the man out of the hospital. But back in July 1915, the supposed Jay Caldwell took up residence with his sister, May Caldwell Moran. It was said that while J.C.R. had been identified as the missing man by several people in the neighborhood of Dickinson, most of them were reconsidering their identification, presumably swayed by Blanchard's statement. But Mrs. Moran never wavered in her belief that J.C.R. was in fact her missing brother. The mystery man lived with his supposed sister for a year and a half. In December 1916, a suit was filed against James Caldwell for recovery of the property due to J. Allen Caldwell. The opinion of the community was turning against the father now. Never the most popular person in the area due to his wealth, rather stingy nature, and just having the reputation of being not a very nice man, now the people of Stark County, North Dakota, began to look at him as a tight-fisted miser trying to cheat his own son out of his inheritance. In his article summarizing the case, W. Fulton Burnett says that in his opinion, 
The feeling that JCR was, indeed, J. Caldwell, was so prevalent and widespread in the area that a peer pressure type effect took place, and that most residents felt they had to identify him as such. At least two people acquainted with the Caldwells left the state so that they would not be subpoenaed and have to testify in front of their neighbors that they didn't believe JCR was Caldwell. So the trial went before Judge William L. Newsell, with W. Fulton Burnett again representing James Caldwell, he had in the short trial brought by Mrs. Pitkin as well, and T.D. Caldwell representing J.C.R. The case, though it took several weeks due to the volume of witnesses called, was a rather simple one at the heart of it. Some 77 people were called to testify and identify J.C.R. Some of the more significant of these, who gave corroborating evidence as well, were Ray Groff, a Dickinson barber, who said that J.C.R. could successfully show him where his barber shop had been in 1907. A local farmer, named Knut Stanger, said that the man could point out where a road, since destroyed, that had led into the Caldwell property in 1907 had been. A man named S.D. Gregg said that he felt J.C.R. sat sideways in his chair in the same manner as had J. Caldwell. And another man named Jacob Rothschiller recalled that Edward Luff, the former husband of May Caldwell Moran, had gotten into a fight with James Caldwell after he had accused his then father-in-law of murdering Jay. Then J.C.R. himself was called to the stand at an unlikely turn of events, given his inability to communicate in any real capacity. He wrote the three letters for which he was named for the court. Then he was asked to write the letters J.R.R. Why? Who knows? But when asked to do so, he wrote the letters J.A.C. He was asked how old James Caldwell was, and successfully indicated the correct age. Then as J. Caldwell had been born in Chicago, he was asked how old he had been when he came to North Dakota. In response to this, he wrote the numbers 26, 1872. Asked how old he was, he wrote the same numbers. J. Caldwell had been born on December 26, 1872. So if the numbers indicated his birthday, did he merely misunderstand a question asked about when he had come to North Dakota? The witnesses for the prosecution seemed to consist mainly of these 77 people and May Caldwell Moran herself. The evidence used by the defense was of five types. First, there was the subjective nature of communication with JCR. The man couldn't really vocalize at all, and while he could write more than he could when he was in the asylum in Minnesota, he still couldn't write in a very comprehensible manner. He still mainly communicated through pantomime. This, in itself, made communication difficult, to say the least. If one asked him a question, usually one would have to depend on interpretation of his pantomiming, and as I said earlier, it's rather like playing charades and the other player can't tell you if your guesses are wrong. Burnett's article cites an instance in which he met with a Dickinson resident named W.A. McClure. When asked what McClure did, J.C.R. pounded on a table. McClure, as it turned out, had been a postmaster, and the pantomime was used as evidence for his being J. Caldwell. But as Burnett rightly points out, quote, If McClure had been a carpenter or a shoemaker, the pantomime would have identified that occupation in the minds of these witnesses. Thus interpretation of J.C.R.'s communications was subject to personal feelings. Judge Newsell summed up this line of thinking as follows in his closing statements on the case. 
I might say with reference to this plaintiff that his greatest infirmity is also his greatest protection. He is speechless. He is unable to say by word of mouth those things which he experienced and remembers. He cannot thus demonstrate as well as the ordinary individual might those things which he knows and which we know. On the other hand, his greatest infirmity is his greatest protection because it is impossible to examine him or cross-examine him with any particularity in order to test that knowledge which he assumes to have. As, for instance, in this connection, I inquired of Mr. Colgrove if he was able to ascertain from this plaintiff as to where he had been from August 1915 until the spring of 1916. Mr. Colgrove knows this plaintiff very well indeed. He has talked with him and yet he is unable to ascertain where the plaintiff in fact was. In other words, it is impossible to ascertain any matters, any matters with reference to this plaintiff unless the party inquiring has knowledge of those facts concerning which he inquires, which enables him to more or less conjecture as to what the plaintiff means when he nods his head affirmatively or negatively and makes the signs which it appears that he does. Secondly, there was the matter of height. J.C.R. was about 5 foot 4. J. Allen Caldwell had been 5 foot 8. Third, there was a matter of ear shape which was inconsistent with the real J. Caldwells. This would seem to be the weakest evidence, though, as that could easily have been altered by injury. Fourth, dental records. It was found that J. Caldwell had nearly 15 fillings. J.C.R. had none. But fifth, the most easily provable, and damning, was the timing. J.C.R. had been found in Wasika on June 29, 1907, and they had the testimonies of Michael McDonald, Sheriff of Wasika County, and Dr. W.H. Chamberlain to corroborate that the man most definitely was the John Doe found in Wasika. J. Caldwell had disappeared on October 14, 1907, so Julia Tennis had been wrong about the date of her nephew's disappearance, but the true date only made it all the more impossible. When J.C.R. was found, J. Caldwell was very much accounted for, having been a juror back in North Dakota. Thus, in the eyes of the jury, and really anyone else for that matter, the evidence that J.C.R. was not J. Caldwell was much more convincing and damning than the evidence that he was, even if there was technically more of the latter. And so, unsurprisingly giving the evidence, it was found that J.C.R. was not, in fact, J. Caldwell. The case might have been over, but the story was not. Four months after the trial's conclusion, James Caldwell and his wife Laura were both shot and killed. Newspapers quoted a 14-year-old girl employed at the ranch, Ella Corey, as saying that Caldwell had, been, had responded to the verdict by barricading his house and looting all his guns, so strong was the feeling against him in the area. Certainly, when police arrested a suspect, Mike Chumack, he at first said that Mr. Caldwell was attempting to assault a girl. Mike Chumack said that he had stepped in, and then he had argued with Mr. Caldwell about the verdict. But the truth was far different. Mr. Caldwell had intervened in an attack perpetrated by Mike Chumack, an attack on Ella Corey. After James was dead, Chumack called for Mr. Caldwell and shot her as well. Immediately upon arrest, Chumack shot himself in the neck. This wound proved not to be fatal, however. The entire time he was in prison, he acted bizarrely and strangely. In August, 
he attacked Sheriff Hartung. Three men were needed to subdue Chumak on this occasion, and his behavior became ever more erratic, until by the time of his trial on August 14th, it was necessary to restrain him in the courtroom. The hearing lasted only an hour, with the jury deliberating only two minutes. Unsurprisingly, Mike Chumak was deemed insane and sent to the North Dakota State Hospital at Jamestown. Just as the Mike Chumak trial was wrapping up, a lawsuit was brought by May Caldwell Moran, and her attorney, L.A. Simpson, disputing the will of James Caldwell. Of his nearly $150,000 estate, $1,000 each was given to each of his two sisters, and the paltry sum of $25 to his own daughter. The rest was placed in a trust. The outcome of this lawsuit, however, is unclear. As for J.C.R. himself, after he was unambiguously declared to not be J. Caldwell, he continued to live with May Caldwell Moran until November 1919. Meanwhile, several states to the east, James Philip Harris had gone missing in June of 1907. Mrs. Clara M. Blue, the former Mrs. Harris, had since remarried but was still endeavoring to discover what had happened to her former husband and the father of her 18-year-old daughter, Dorothy. She had begun to suspect that the mysterious J.C.R. was her ex-husband, while the Caldwell trial was still ongoing, and in November 1919 was going to go to Dickinson to see him. But by the time she arrived, J.C.R. had gone. While the two were married, Mrs. Blue said, something always had seemed a bit off with James. He received quite a lot of telegrams that he wouldn't tell her about, and he made a good deal of money from some source unknown to her. On June 17, 1907, he left Duluth, Minnesota, where they were then living, on a fishing trip and was never seen by her again. Maybe. This was only about two weeks before JCR was found at the train station in Wasika. She continued to track JCR, and on January 27, 1920, he was finally located in Seattle by a Mr. Goodall, a former resident of Dickinson. By August 17, 1920, he was living in St. Paul, Minnesota with his ex-wife. In January of 1921, he was re-examined by a St. Paul doctor named Dr. Henry Zimmerman, who stated that, in his opinion, the partial paralysis with which JCR was afflicted would progress over the following years. But he shortly departed again. It was said that he wandered the West Coast for a time. By November 9th of that year, he had made it back to Dickinson, North Dakota. And here, sadly, is where we lose track of JCR, whoever he might have been. Neither were J. Allen Caldwell or James P. Harris ever found. In Burnett's article on the case, he compares it to the Tichborne Claimant case, which I also did an episode on. I think this is on the face of it a decent enough comparison, but in the details, it's not a very good comparison at all. J.C.R. himself wasn't necessarily trying to con anyone. He wasn't an Arthur Orton proclaiming himself to be Roger Tichborne. If anyone was conning anyone, it was other people. And as Judge Newsell said in his statement, I'm not certain that even this was the case. I think those people genuinely believed him to be J. Caldwell. Furthermore, I really don't think J.C.R. himself had any idea who he was. It was a theory among some for a time that he was faking his mutism, but numerous doctors concurred that such was definitely not the case, and that the man had definitely been brain damaged. In hindsight, 
What was seen by so many as confirmation of their theories on who he was, the nodding, and seeming to recognize words and names, were just symptoms of him trying to find an identity and seizing on to any of that presented themselves. As Judge Newsell said in his closing statements on the Caldwell identity case, quote, In view of the fact as I know it, and in view of the testimony that has been offered in this case, I think that this plaintiff may himself believe that he is Jay Caldwell. That was likely correct. Although it was impossible, he definitely was not Jay Caldwell. He thought he was. Personally, if any of the named candidates, it may have been James P. Harris. His disappearance taking place only a short time and in relatively close proximity to where JCR was found on the railway station is certainly an, an interesting coincidence. And JCR, when he was younger and healthier, does resent, somewhat resemble a photograph of James P. Harris. Not exactly, to be sure, but recall that the man had had a stroke. As anyone who's known anyone who had a stroke might be able to tell you, that can very well change the appearance of your face a bit. Like so many other questions posed on this show, however, it's very likely we'll never know who JCR was. DNA would be able to give us the answer now, true, but the fact is we don't even know where his body ended up to do anything about it. Did he end up just another nameless inmate in a mental hospital? Just another unidentified corpse found somewhere? Did he finally remember his identity, doubtful though that outcome might have been? We might never know. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. Some of those will, of course, be photographs of both JCR and James P. Harris. Let me know if you agree that these two could possibly be the same man. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, until next time, this is Andrew. Signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.